Welcome to episode 105, Coming Out on a Continuum, Recognizing the Lifelong Process for LGBTQ People, featuring John Sovek, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, interviewed by Elizabeth E. Riez. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. This is Elizabeth Irias, and I'm honored today to be joined by John Sovek. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, absolutely. It's delightful to be with all of you. Um, so John is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, and he is a nationally recognized expert on the topic of creating affirming support for the LGBT community. Um, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, about your background, about how you came to have this specialization? Absolutely. So, you know, it's really interesting. If any of you think back to maybe your grad school experience, um, for most of us, there was maybe a few hours at most talking about LGBTQ community-based issues. And there are very few grad school specializing programs. And for me, even more so, that there's very little information about supporting LGBTQ adolescents. And I saw that gap in education, and it became really vital and important for me to focus on trying to fill in that gap, both for myself, um, with active learning, research, connecting into sources that have traveled this road before me, and also as an openly queer man to provide support for a community that hopefully someday with information out there and helping to train other professionals and create a space where we can talk about this and learn from each other, that one kid's coming out process or one adult coming out process will be easier for them and supported and understood by fellow clinicians. You bring a very unique perspective to this um, because of your lived experience as well. So today we're going to be talking about specifically viewing the coming out process as ongoing, not as something that checks some box at a certain age or telling our family members. There's so much that could be said about this. Why don't we start by an invitation for you and what this topic means to you and what you've seen working with this community? For me and the work that I've done with clients, I often find that even kids who come from the most affirming families or adults who are coming out and come from very supportive family units still have a lot of anxiety and nervousness about the conversation about coming out. And on a most basic level, if we as therapists can be there with them to help them walk through this journey, to help them explore and create safe spaces for them to learn who and how they want to come out to, this can be a really powerful thing. Um, I know for myself, I was really lucky. I have had some amazing therapists during the course of my lifetime, and they've either been affirming or they've been trained, and they've known how to support me. And that really helped me to firm up my coming out process. The other thing is you mentioned too, that coming out is not a one and done situation. It's not like I came out of 14, yay, everything's perfect now. That I have had to come out multiple times during my lifetime in different experiences, whether it's going away to college and being in a completely new population, having to come out to students, teachers there, whether it's moving into relationship and coming out to myself as a gay man who's now in relationship, whether it's work experiences I've had where I have had to choose, do I come out of this work experience? Do I not? 
And I know at this point in my life, as the person that I am, I am completely open about my identity. I'm proud of my identity. And it's a really deep part of the fabric of who I am. And my hope is that in this conversation, we can create space where everyone will have that type of support. Great. Um, John, when you and I had talked about when we wanted to release this podcast episode, we had talked specifically about releasing it on National Coming Out Day. So why don't you tell us a little bit about National Coming Out Day and really what it means and, and the significance for this community? So National Coming Out Day originally started in 1988. So we've been doing this for over 30 years. And it was put together as a response to the national um, gay and lesbian march in Washington that happened the year before. And what National Coming Out Day creates is a space for people who are open and willing to do this, to come out, to speak openly about who they are and their identities as LGBTQ people and being part of our community. And what is so vital and important about having a moment like that is to raise and create visibility. You have to understand that there are places in the world where people still do not see their identity represented in their community. And that's even happening here in Western society. And it's important to understand that as a queer kid growing up, we are one of the few minority statuses that actually do not see ourselves represented in our family unit. So I don't necessarily have, as a queer young boy, someone to look up to and say, who do I model? Who do I become? How do I follow and learn on this path? And by having National Coming Out Day, we're creating visibility. I know a few years ago, um, Michael Sam, football player, came out. And it was a really big deal for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was a football player coming out, a national sports star coming out and affirming his identity. Second of all, it was a black man, a man of color. And this is a representation that we see a lot of. So his coming out was a huge moment for kids and communities all over the place to say, oh, that could be me. And that's why National Coming Out Day is so important on so many levels. I can hear as you talk about it, how significant the day is. When you think about first even setting the tone to give space to an LGBTQ person in therapy, what do we do as clinicians to create an affirming environment? You know, you use a really powerful word, yes, affirming environment. I think it's really vital for all of us in the profession to look at, because there are a lot of people that are really wonderful clinicians who are LGBTQ friendly. And what that means is maybe I know someone who's gay, or I've got a child or a relative, or I support the gay community by making donations. What it may not mean is that you've actually had the additional training and the knowledge base to support the community. So when I use the word LGBTQ affirming therapist, what I mean is I have done the work. It's not saying that I have to be an LGBTQ person to be an affirming therapist. It means that I have studied, I have learned, I have attended one of John Sovak's workshops. <laughs> I've gone online and I've read through PFLAG and I've read through HRC and I've looked at the Gleason studies where I am someone who has created the knowledge base that allows me the language to support my clients and not put my clients in the position of having to learn from me. 
And I think that can be a really dangerous dynamic that we can set up in the room for all kinds of different levels, but especially when we're, as a clinician, asking our client to educate us on what LGBTQ is. That's a really dangerous dynamic. And, you know, in some of my trainings, I think it's really powerful that I will often ask, is there anyone in the room who's uncomfortable with this open dialogue about supporting LGBTQ people? And occasionally someone is brave enough to raise their hand. And usually in that moment, the whole room turns and gasps and cuts their pearls. And it's this big reaction. And I actually pause the room. And I want to recognize and address that there are people in our work who cannot, because of their belief system, support an LGBTQ person. And it is so vital for them to be able to self-identify that. Because in this case, these are school counselors I was working with. And it was important for that person to say, I may not be able to provide support this kid needs. But in that case, it's vital to have resources in the community to be able to refer that kid to rather than cause any type of ongoing harm in conversations with that kid. So that self-identification is really important. And if you're saying, yes, I would like to be an affirming therapist, then go out, get the training, and really get yourself resourced in this community. Um, I think you bring up a great point about needing to be upfront with ourselves about where our biases are. Why don't we take a little minute and talk about that? Let's talk about what it means to have straight or cisgender privilege. And for clinicians who are listening who are not part of the LGBT community, some some guidance on how they start separating and recognizing this, this is what privilege means and this is how it can affect a power dynamic and rapport in the therapy room and without, you know, outside the therapy room as well and being more aware of that on a, on a day-to-day basis. Well, Sometimes for me, the best way to start is is it was a very simple example um, of some really heteronormative um, privilege that exists in the world. So if my husband and I are walking through a neighborhood, let's say we go to Old Town Pasadena, which is where I live. We go there a lot. And let's say we've had a nice evening. We have had a nice dinner together. We're strolling, looking in store windows. And as a couple, I mean, we've been together 18 years at this point, we want to hold hands. What we have to do as queer people is we actually have to look around and we have to check for safety before we decide if we're going to hold hands or not. And this is a really simple but very subtle place where this type of privilege is showing up. So as a clinician, we need to be aware of that as well. What are the things that a cisgender heterosexual clinician might be doing on a regular basis that they don't even know the question to ask their LGBT client who is coming to them for affirmation? Another place of kind of cisgender privilege that I witness a lot lot with clinicians is clinicians who take on the task of working with transgender clients. And They work with them with very little training or background, thinking that their techniques will work with this particular population. And yet what we find in the room often is very simple things start to happen, like misgendering, misnaming, making assumptions based on what, you know, uh, cisgender normative uh, realities are. And those things start to build. 
And I can't tell you the number of clients who come to me, especially transgender clients, who talk about these really challenging positions with therapists who didn't know the most basic levels of how important it is to use an affirmed pronoun, to use an affirmed name, to address the affirmed gender so that they can create support in that room and these people can feel heard. We all know the research relating to the importance of safety and therapy and how fundamental that is and the gravity that someone may face. Uh, I was recently having a conversation uh, with Dara Hoffman Fox, and we were talking about um, awareness that sometimes when a client tells us something, we may be the first person that they have said it to whatever the thing is. And if it relates to something like their gender and sexual identity, how powerful that is and wanting to create an affirming and safe space for them. And in the absence of that, how detrimental it could be. Yeah, the messages of that, though, come out very subtly, very quickly, whether it's a Psychology Today profile or a website or the initial phone call or the intake forms. There's going to be lots of subtle information that can be handed off to a client that's going to let them know if it might be safer to come out or not. Um, one of the things I do with a lot of my clients, and it's a really fascinating thing, and it's just kind of the way I work, is when we're in the room, when we're early on getting to know each other, and they may start talking about dating. I purposely don't put an assumption about what particular gender identity they might be talking about. So if I have someone who says, yeah, you know, and they've given the inclination that they might be, you know, heterosexual, They'll be like, yeah, I've been doing this and dating and I'm really worried about and this and that and the other. And I will say something like, so are we only talking girls? Are we only talking boys? And it will usually pause them for a moment. But at the same time, it will give them the knowledge that this could be a space in the future. If this is something they needed or wanted to talk about, that it could happen. And most of my clients have a really positive response. Um, I have a quick story I love to share. I had this 17-year-old football player kid come in. He identified as straight and male. And in the course of our conversation, he was talking about having a lot of trouble dating girls. And I said to him, it's like, so is dating girls the only you know thing that you're interested in? And because I had set this beautiful, casual environment, he said to me, well, I mean, I've thought about guys, but I just don't think it's my thing. That type of communication in a therapy room is so powerful because if sometime in the future he had some feeling, some inkling that was like, I'm not sure what to do with this, because we had set up that environment, he now knew it was okay to talk about it. And I think those subtleties from our intake forms, not asking just male, female checkbox, but creating space, how do you identify your gender? How do you identify your sexual orientation? How do you identify your relationships or your family situation? By creating these more narrative open spaces, we're giving our clients these messages that say, this is a space that's affirming and you will be able to talk about it if and when you need to. Um, I think those are great points about being really deliberate in just setting the tone because, you know, for many clients, this is an ongoing process. And so maybe they are out to a select friend, maybe they're out to a family member, but they haven't told you as a therapist yet and wanting to basically pave the way ahead of them. I want to point out for our listeners, we have a wonderful uh, podcast episode. It's episode number 65 by Kyle Bullock, where he talks quite a bit about strategies for 
um, creating a really affirming practice for particularly trans individuals, trans and gender nonconforming people. So I really recommend that to build out what John just talked about, about the importance of, um, you know, how we even speak on the intake form. John, as we're talking about this, I want to kind of pivot and talk about the importance of viewing this as a lifelong process. You already touched upon that, but let's talk about what coming out looks like um, in terms of the stages of the, of the coming out process and how you see those stages play out in a lifespan. Well, if we look from a purely research point of view, and I think that's always a, a really interesting place is to look at the research. Back in the late 70s, um, Vivian Cass came out with a six-stage LGBT community QQ coming out model. And in this model, it was looking at these six stages that were identified as awareness, identity comparison, identity tolerance, identity acceptance, identity pride, and identity synthesis. This is kind of the, the, the foundation that a lot of coming out research has been based on since then. What we know now, though, is there are some flaws in this particular coming out model in the fact that it was really only looking at gay white males as the creation of this model. So what we've really explored over time is looking at things like the Dowgley lifespan model, which says that there are periods of things, tasks that we are supposed to accomplish over a lifetime that are continuous. And where the cast model is written um, as a linear model, the Dowdley model is written as a circular model where we keep dropping in and out of those life tasks. Um, there's also the um, passenger lesbian coming out model. It's starting to look at the female process of coming out as a lesbian. And then there's the Arlena Starlev model, which looks at transgender emergence. All of these models have their strengths and weaknesses. And as research continues, we keep expanding how these models work out. The thing that I've come up for myself in the work that I do is really looking at three different phases that we move in and out of uh, on a continuum and a spectrum. And the first one is this idea of introspection. And in introspection, if I'm going to use myself, if I identify as queer, I'm going to be looking inside. And I'm going to be noticing the differences that I feel from the others that I see around me. And that word other is really important because that's really the core of this introspection moment is I feel othered. I notice that there are feelings and sensations that I'm having inside myself that are not reflected in my world around me. And that could be an adolescent coming out. It could be like I talked about being in a work environment and noticing, okay, there's a very hetero cisgender push in the environment around me. I need to look inside and see how comfortable I feel with coming out. The next piece of this model that I like to work with is called identification. And this is when I start actually connecting. When the strands start to pull out into the world and I find those people that are safe for me to start talking about my identity with, and I start looking at well, what does that community feel like to me? Maybe I start giving emphasis to hanging out in LGBTQ environments much more. I may start relationships and dating in those, in those situations. So this identification period is when I start connecting. And then finally, this important phase is integrating. 
And in integration, this is where I create my own sense of belonging in myself. Um, one of the ways I like to describe it is a lot of times when we are coming out in any situation, we put our queer identity as the number one thing on the list of how we describe ourselves. You know, I am this. Over time, though, with integration, what happens for myself is that I become uh, a husband, a yoga teacher, a mindfulness person, a gardener, a baker, a dog owner, and I'm queer. And it integrates into the wholeness of who I am. And these phases will continue to express themselves over the course of a lifetime. So introspection, realizing I might be, have different experiences with the people I'm around, identification, where I want to connect myself into a community that feels authentic to me and integration, that sense of belonging. Thank you for breaking those down and kind of lending um, how you see them and apply them. So one of the questions that comes up for clinicians that don't have a lot of experience working with this population is if, if a client comes out in therapy, then do I need to make sure that they come out to their family members? I, I've heard you know this push where it's like, okay, well, they said that they are gay and now we're moving on to having this conversation with family. And this idea that somehow when we say coming out, that first box you have to check in order to be quote unquote authentic in whatever identity we're talking about is by coming out. Can you speak to that a little bit and this idea of where where you see based on your experience, based on the research, like where quote unquote coming out to family members comes in this continuum? I think as a clinician, we always need to be aware of our agendas in the room. And if someone comes out to us and our automatic response is, oh, we've got to come out to everybody now, that's actually our agenda and not our clients. For me, the most vital thing about this, I'm ready to speak about it, is safety first. Because in the world we live in, whether it's kids or adults, depending on where you live, there are big safety questions that come up about with our ability to come out and feel affirmed. And so if someone identifies in the therapy room, it's the first time they speak it out loud. First off, let's give some time and space, even multiple sessions, to just let that marinate in the room, to not be in a rush to take our clients somewhere, but to let them start to speak and identify what that means, what it feels like to them. A very common thing that will happen is you may have a client come out to you in a session and then you're ready the next session to like dive in because you went online, you read all this great stuff, and they don't want to talk about it. And we need to create some space for that to play out on the levels that it needs to play out for their own personal experience. And then if they're choosing to come out, what I like to do with clients is to really look at a safety plan. Who do you most feel that it would be safe for you to come out with? And what would that safety look like? Are there people that you feel it would not be safe to come out to? And why is it not safe? Let's explore that and actually be methodical about it. Because if we can help them create a planned coming out process, it's going to create a much more empowering experience for them. Oftentimes, what will happen is there'll be what we call an explosive coming out style, where they'll like be talking to someone and talking to someone. They're like, so you're so handsome. Why aren't you don't have a wife or a girlfriend? Where's your family? And then they'll explode and come out and it won't be a contained or safe experience. 
Because ultimately, the person who is in charge of coming out and telling their story is your client. It's not you. And so our job is to be there to help them quantify how they're going to do it and to create a safe plan that will allow them to live their life openly and powerfully. I appreciate that you advise starting with safety and making sure that we're being aware of how our beliefs about how something should be are coming into the room and being mindful of that awareness. And also the fact that some clients, when we're seeing them, may may choose because there isn't safety to not come out and that 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 pressure is something that they may even be feeling and that we don't want to contribute to that in the room as well. Well, and backing up to something you had asked me earlier about like, well, how does privilege show up sometimes? Um, When we talk about safety, uh, this is such a random thing, but it just popped in my mind. I really wanted to share it. Whenever um, my husband and I are getting ready to travel, I actually look to the country we're traveling to and look at what are their policies about LGBTQ people? What is the environment? How supportive are they? How supportive are they not? So even as a really open, happily identified queer man, I still check for safety whenever I travel. And that's an example of that privilege, but it's also a nice way to look at how this safety issue is really important for those of us in the community. Definitely. And as you say that, I'm also recognizing here we are talking about coming out, but in fact, what you're talking about in that moment is basically recloseting. So in order to travel here, I need to hide this part of my identity for my safety. And then basically adopting two different versions of yourself depending on a particular environment and then the re-entry to your authentic identity when you're back in an environment that feels safe. And another thing too that I think is a, a really interesting process that's starting to play out now as well too is we talk about coming out. There's a really cool thing that's starting to buzz up in the community and it's about the idea of rather than coming out, inviting in. And if we look at this integration phase that I talk about, is the possibility of me identifying as a queer man actually inviting you into my world rather than me feeling I have to come out so you can accept me into your world? And I really like this whole idea of inviting in, coming in versus coming out. I think it's a real beautiful movement that's starting to gain some momentum, and I hope we can we can travel with Absolutely. Uh, and and I think that relates directly back to what you're just saying about using really deliberate language in session with clients, which is an invitation in. So John, um, you've, you've mentioned kind of these stages of coming out. How do you cope with the fact that it's basically an invitation sometimes for for grief and rejection and going through that lack of safety over and over and over again in these different environments and and having to keep going through this process? I think it's really vital for all of us to understand that holding on to this piece of identity, identity and information and trying to maintain it and sometimes control it is actually a trauma-based experience. Um, I've been doing a lot of conversations in the last few years about this idea that the coming out process, the inviting in process, is a traumatic-based experience. Because if you think about the example I gave earlier about checking my surroundings to see if I could hold my husband's hand, that is me moving from a heightened vagal system, which is looking around to see if I am safe, 
So then having to release that heightened experience to hopefully connect and be able to hold my partner's hand. And if we look at this from a very young age, if you think about, you know, a transgender kid who somewhere in their early youth identifies and knows that they are not the assigned birth sex that they were given, but they look around them and they see that there's no place for them in their school, in their community, in their religious world, in their family, then they have to go into a hypervigilant state and constantly be on guard for their behavior, how they walk in the world, how they appear to others in the world. So this hypervigilant state, this trauma-based state, starts at a very young age for most LGBTQ people. The thing that's interesting, though, if we put this into the scope of a lifelong process, now we're looking at the idea, what am I walking with around the world as when I have this heightened experience, this hypervigilance, this awareness of my community and the safety questions around me on a regular basis? Our bodies are not designed to live in that heightened state. And it's really important to understand that this may be part of a process that your client is going to going through, no matter how open and affirmed they are or how deep in the closet they may be, that they are living in this tra- traumatic state, that their amygdala has been overloaded, hypersensitive. They've got cortisol and adrenaline, norepinephrine racing through their bodies 24 hours a day. And as we know from the neuroscience that's out there, that is not healthy for anybody. And then what do we see happen with this? We see all these coping mechanisms. And I actually don't like these coping mechanisms. I call them survival mechanisms. We look at things like perfectionism and um, trying to be so successful that no one can pull me down, trying to be in ultimate control of situations, Uh, maybe being emotionally distancing and pushing someone away being ambivalent about the world they live in so they don't make a lot of statements about who they are, taking that even deeper and isolating. And then, of course, we're looking at substance use. Um, SAMHSA, just the survey two years ago, was really looking at the heightened level of substance disorders in the LGBT community, looking at a model that was to 20 to 30% of people who identify as LGBTQ are abusing substance and overusing. And these are all ways that we're trying to manage this this traumatic state in our bodies. You know, I know for me, my management was actually perfectionism. Probably somewhere through my early to mid-20s, I thought if I could be so perfect and so put together that nobody could have any question about me being gay and they couldn't tease me for it because I had it together. And that was my coping mechanism. And my self-discovery was the idea that I could let go of that. And that was a way for me to release myself and free some of this really hypervigilant energy in my body. I was reminded of an example where um, someone who was considering coming out to family members was thinking about it actively. And then um, there was a TV show on, there was a a same-sex love scene and that a sibling and a parent had this reaction, you know, back into the cave and like, okay, it is not safe. These, these microaggressions or not microaggressions, these true dangerous aggressions that make it continually scary to exist out in the world. Um, 
as I say that, uh, and I know our listeners can't can't see you, but I can see you nodding. Tell me what's coming up as I'm talking about that um, and how that connects to how you see this kind of in clinical practice. What most of us are aware of <clears throat> as clinicians when we're working with clients or as we're walking through the worlds ourselves is the overt messages, the big ones that we see, you know, Someone who's proud has a gay pride flag hanging from their balcony. Someone who is opposed to this is, you know, trying to get a petition signed in your neighborhood to do something that's, that's difficult or challenging for the LGBT community. These are very messages we can see. And that's where we're like, we get together, we address them, we take them on. But there are these covert messages that come up in so many subtle ways. Once again, it's like you say, whether it was a comment or not, but just something comes up that has the same sex scene and switching the channel, not even having to say anything, but just doing that switch, commenting that like, hey, Sherry's playing on the radio. Oh, those are that's so gay, you know, that all of those things lay out these little, little snippets of language that make the world feel unsafe for LGBTQ people. And we have to be aware of the environment that we're creating on a regular basis. I am not a person that says you have to be so hyper aware that you're not able to be authentic, but I do think it's important, whether you're a clinician or just walking around your world, if you make a mistake, whether it's overt or covert, and you say something that is you see by the reaction of the person who you're speaking with, or you feel is inside is not supportive of the LGBTQ community, check in with yourself, take a breath, own it, apologize, and move on. And if it's something that you're like, why would I say a thing like that? I don't understand this thing. Then research it, go online, read things like a human rights campaign, look at some of the resources through Gleason, which is the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network. Look at some of the trans care information, go on to gender you know, Odyssey, and learn about these places where maybe you're using language that's not supportive or putting out messages that aren't supportive, and then decide for yourself if you are able and willing to change. I know as a clinician and as a queer man, I'm actually like, okay, if you make a mistake, I'll just say something like, you know, that actually wasn't really good language, and here's a better way you might want to say it. For other people on their journey, some people are really militant about it, and it's a really important thing for them to make sure it's taken care of. And other people can be very passive-aggressive about it. For me, I just think this idea that if we can talk openly and help each other and shape each other and model for each other, that that's how we're going to create connection. And that's the path that I'm working on. When you're discussing kind of the, the ongoing coming out process, I'm thinking about these moments in time that are really significant in a person's life that carry so many hetero and cis normative assumptions, um, like getting married, like funerals, like buying a home. Um, can you talk with us about how you in particular work with clients who are LGBTQ when one of these things comes up? How do you invite those conversations and I guess layer that into the work surrounding these major life moments? So I want to back it up even a little bit before that. And it has to do with us as LGBT community members choose to do for ourselves. There are some people in the community, my husband's actually a great example. 
that for him, the ultimate way of his happiness is by us mimicking a heteronormative cisgender experience. You know, he wants that house. He wants it to be beautiful. He wants to mimic what he saw growing up. And for me, I'm a little bit more of a like, let's push against it. We have the ability, you know, we're creative types. Um, because if you think about it, I, as a gay man, was not allowed to legally marry for most of my life. And so what that meant is I had to learn how to create relationships without the the path, without the book that says, hi, you're heterosexual and cisgender. Here's what you're supposed to do. What I got to do is say like, okay, well, I'm in a relationship and I think there's going to be a long-term one. How do I want this to play out? What do I want to look like? How do I want it to feel? What do I want us to commit to, to each other? And it didn't have to sit in that model that we see all around us in the world. So I always encourage this idea that we as LGBTQ people can be creative in our relationships and how we choose to interact with each other and the world. Now, to your question directly, when we're interacting with the world, most of the world is not there with us. Let's just be honest. So you're right. If I do call a funeral parlor, the assumption is going to be that I sound male so I must have a female partner who has died. And what I encourage people to do is you just need to be absolutely succinct and straightforward. There's no need to excuse. There's no need to explain. You'd be like, actually, it's for my husband and his name is Martin. That's all I'm required to do. After that phone call, though, if I'm feeling triggered, if I'm feeling less than, if I'm feeling put upon, then that's where I reach out to my friends to get support from them so that they can say like, oh man, that really sucks. It must be so hard, especially what you're going through right now. What do you need? So to manage it for myself in a very succinct and straightforward way, and then get the support I need to re to take care and appease the feelings that I'm having because of that experience. It sounds like one of the primary things, so it's not just the acknowledgement and the open statement of making a phone call like that or having that experience, but then seeking support from the community. When you're first working with someone who is uh, questioning, let's say, how do you um, encourage them to get involved with the community and what uh, what information do you give them? Do you offer them to understand that that's really a pretty fundamental part of of having, I guess, a fabric to support you in the in the challenges that are ahead as, as you may or may not pursue coming out? So a couple of techniques that I bring into the room is, first of all, if someone is in the questioning phase, I explore that question for them. If you were bisexual, how would that look in your world? How would it play out? How would it feel for you personally? What would dating look like? What would relationships look like? And we explore scenarios of what that word, that identity of bisexuality would mean for them and look like for them. And then we do some thematic work to really identify. It's like, as I imagine myself um, in this ability to own a bisexual identity, my energy rises, I feel powerful, I feel lightness then we're identifying that the body's responding to that in a way that has some affirmation behind it. If I look at it and I'm getting this really negative, low energy response, we explore what that low energy is about. Is it about a refusal or the identity is not authentic? 
Are we looking at that there have been strong messages over a lifetime that they say their bisexuality is not authentic? We really use the somatic experiencing as a means to help them explore and be curious about how this might work. And then outside the room, I give them homework assignments. It's like, well, why don't you go online and read a little bit about find a gay author, find a bisexual author. Um, let me refer you to a blog. There's an amazing um, blog out there called them.us. And it's a really beautiful, beautiful exploration of gender and how it's expressed into the world. And that's a place where I can safely send clients and they can explore on their own. And once again, does that feel like you? Does that not feel like you? Oh, I'm seeing someone who says that they're a trans male. I thought that's who I was. Ah, that's not authentic. But I'm reading this amazing non-binary article about this artist who is creating all this work based on their non-binary identity. Oh, that's authentically me. That's where I belong. That is, this, that is my community. And those pieces are where we start to explore and deepen their identity development. There's so much power in, in what you just said. I mean, so many different thoughts that are occurring to me. Um, it sounds like really the fundamental importance of nurturing their exploration. And, and I want to hit on a point that you made earlier. Um, the importance also of allowing a client to bring into the room what they feel they need to bring in. One of the other things I've heard from practitioners before is like, if a client says, you know, I'm questioning or, oh yes, I'm gay or I'm trans, that sometimes providers really pivot and they go, well, then we need to talk about this. <laughs> Even though what we're really talking about is, you know, what we want to study in college or like working through that argument with dad. Um, can you talk about that and kind of the awareness of this piece that's rolling in the background, their gender and sexuality, but that, that this, this is their lived experience every single moment of every single day and may not be what they want to necessarily discuss in therapy. Can you speak to that? I would suggest that it's actually like any client experience we have. A ton of information comes into us in the room. And I don't know about you, but for me as a therapist, I have this little file on the back of my brain that says, oh, someday we need to talk about that parental conversation with their young. Oh, someday we need to talk about that gender piece that they slipped in but didn't want to talk about that day. Oh, someday we need to talk about and relate this all to their feeling that they can't connect intimately with people. Like, we don't pour everything into the room every session. We gather information. We let that weave itself into the fabric of the experience with each unique client that comes into the room. And then we could bring this in and a space, a suggestion. Do you think part of this is happening because of? And we offer connections, but then we follow our client's lead. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I will put a potential thing in the room. The client will say like, no, I don't think that's it. And then three weeks later, come in and say like, so do you remember what you were talking about? <laughs> it's been sitting with me. And I realize I think that is part of it. But by us not running ahead of our client by saying, ah, the reason why they're having trouble at work is because of their gender expression. Instead, exploring with them, it's just like, I'm not passionate about my work. It's not the place I want to be. This is how I'm earning money, but it's not where my career wants to go. 
then we're following their lead. But if we're like, it must be your gender expression, then we have lost the, the trail with our client. Um, I, as you were telling that story, I, I laughed to myself because I, I actually had that happen not too long ago where there was something that had happened politically. And initially, like I kind of made the connection and said, I wonder if this, and it was like, no. And the same thing a few weeks later, I'm like, oh yeah. And I was like, okay, then now we can talk about it. Um, and, and setting the, I guess, setting the tone that it's okay to explore these layers of, of what this identity means for that person. Um, and, and not necessarily assuming that that is the primary layer and just allowing for its existence at all. And I think that's why also as clinicians, it's so important that we have our own therapist and have therapy experience because my best therapists over my lifetime have been the ones that have created space for stuff to be in the room and sit there and we don't have to follow an agenda, but we have the ability that space in between. You know, one of the moments, you know, I talked about coming out of a lifelong process and in one of my moments between relationships, um, I had ended with an ex. I was going through a really deep, serious depression. I reconnect with my therapist, who I had for a long time. She's an amazing lover. Um, and we started working on some stuff. And what came out of it is that I was actually carrying some shame because we had been that couple that were always like, and... You know, it was never just John or just them, but it was like us together. And I was feeling shame because I had let my community down by not keeping that idea of, look, they've been together 12 years. That's a successful couple. And she brought that thought in. And I was like, no, I don't think that's it. And then during the week in between, I was like, that is what's going on right now. And that goes back a little bit to that coping mechanism stuff I talked about, the perfectionism about success, um, that I was holding on to that so tightly that we were an example of a powerful couple for the community that when that fell apart, I was feeling like I had somehow, somehow let my community down. And that space in between, oh, it's the juiciest part of therapy, I believe. No, that's a that's a very good point. Absolutely. It's it's rich with the work and with growth. Um, when it comes to clients that are experiencing this ongoing coming out process, and, and basically, you're witnessing these potentially traumatic experiences, I'm guessing that you are probably pretty open in, in calling a trauma a trauma, calling a spade a spade, and then inviting a grief exploration. Like what comes up when you know that kind of thing happens or when the person at the family reunion asks that question or whatever it is. Um, how do you make space in the room for that um, as a clinician? I imagine you've seen it so many times. I know I have in my work as well. Um, tell me kind of what your process is in, in creating an affirming space, not just, again, for that initial coming out, but for those moments that that someone doesn't anticipate that things are going to go sideways, and then they do. They become traumas. For me, um, it does go into leaning in some of those trauma-based modalities. And because the somatic side, I'm also a yoga teacher. I'm a mindfulness teacher. This has been part of my life path for a lot of my lifetime, that when they're talking about it, I will note for myself what's happening with their body language, having energetically in the room. They're starting to have a repetitive motion in one hand. And as they're 
bringing the story to fullness, sometimes we'll pause and I'll be like, I want to invite you to just check in with your body for a moment. What kind of responses you're having right now? And then maybe they'll identify some of their responses. And then perhaps I'll identify like, and one of the responses I noticed that you didn't identify is this thing going on with your left hand. What do you, what's, what's this about? And we'll start to bit by bit unfold that traumatic response. And maybe the left hand was, I just wanted to choke them because I can't believe they misgendered me after for three Christmases in a row, I have told them who I am. And then we have some space to let the body release that, to let the mind release that, and then create a plan going forward as to what they want to do for their own self-care and well-being in future Christmas interactions with that particular person. So I guess the layer is recognizing the trauma, dancing and dropping into the trauma, helping the body release the trauma, and then creating plans for moving forward. When creating those plans, I can also imagine you having your own reaction to, you know, I I know I do, uh, you know, to a family member who it is the third Christmas that they've corrected them and it keeps happening. Um, How do you personally self-monitor to be really mindful of kind of what what your hope or expectation is or how, you know, what what you would do with your magic wand and then putting that in the cupboard where it belongs and then making sure to help the client find their magic wand. Um, How do you do that? Because I think it's, I think in those situations, when you are a clinician who is either LGBTQ friendly or affirming, it's almost unavoidable for us to have like a visceral reaction to some of the things that we hear because they're just so hurtful. How do you cope with that? Well, I would suggest it's like any really gifted clinician. We need to always be aware of what's happening with us in the room. The way I describe it is that because of the somatic and the mindfulness work that I've been exposed to, my body is a tuning fork. And when it starts to reverberate, I need to check if that's something I need to be aware of with my client or if it's something happening inside of me. And I talk to a lot of really gifted clinicians and they they kind of relate to this idea that even as we're present in the room, there's kind of this slightly step back version of ourselves that's watching what's happening and how we're reacting and this bigger like exploration of the whole room as a whole, not just what's happening with the client. And that's where I get the information and the messages. Now, I work for a postmodern stand. So if it is something that's coming up and it's authentic and it feels like it belongs in the room, I will bring stuff into the room. I will bring experience and personal stories into the room. If, and I kind of have this seven second thing that one of my supervisors taught me a long time ago, that if I think it's so important to say, I need to sit with it for at least a minimum of seven seconds. And usually by the time the seven seconds are up, my brilliant thing that I want to share is no longer applicable to what's happening in the room. And that has guided me through so many moments where I could have exploded like you're describing. I can't believe they're still doing that to you. And allowed me to sit and let the client have the experience before my experience dominates the room. And then the most vital thing that we can do as clinicians is have people you can consult with. You know, if I have a session where I get really, really triggered, 
I've got a group of clinicians and I can send out a quick text and say, anybody have a few minutes? I'm blowing up right now. And some will say like, I'm free and we'll talk. Or sometimes I'll just say like, rep session, just send me some energy. And people will send me like thinking of you, sending some energy your way, all of that. That is so important for us as clinicians to have, whether you're gay, straight, anywhere on the spectrum, it is so important for us to have consultation and people who support us in this work. I think you bring up a great point. Um, I think I think that's really critical with any population. Um, but you know, my again, my even my own experience of the countertransference and having to balance how do we show up authentically and say, "Gosh, I when I hear that story, my my heart tilts to the side, and it just sounds like it must have been so painful for you." And all the while, I I always think of the movie Ghost when I'm having those moments and how he kind of rises up out of his body and is observing it happening. Like that's what I think of in those moments. Um, But I think your point about consultation is a really good one for clinicians that are newer to working with this community. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly had the experience that I'd be working with somebody and then however long into it, they say, oh, and by the way, there's this. And it's like, oh, okay, our work is totally pivoting. So now we need to talk, you know, now I need to learn more about eating disorders or or this piece that I may not know about. For clinicians who are listening to this and going, okay, you know, I'm, I'm friendly and I want to be more affirming. How do you recommend they start to establish a, a consultation group? What are your ideas about how to help clinicians find um, a group of people that can support them as as they become more affirming in their work? I think the first place to start off is locally. Um, look around your local community. Find out who actually is someone who does this work that you're not sure about. We're talking about LGBTQ affirming therapy right now. Who is in your community that could be someone that you could reach out and create a consultation-based experience with them? And remember, consultation unless you have a give and take relationship with them, like my group does, is something that if you've got a lived experience, I am going to pay you to guide me through where my losses and my challenges are. It's not that you should be able to call up an LGBTQ person and say like, look, I know you're gay. Can you help me through this? We need to recognize the lived experience and the value that goes with it. I think that's really important. Also look for community-based organizations that are in your area. Find out the clinicians who are working there. If there's an LGBTQ center, that's not necessarily in your rural community, but is in your state, can you reach out and connect with them and start building some relationships there? There are lots of really powerful online communities that are developing. Um, there are quite a few that are on social media, where once again, you can reach out and you can share experience and needs that you may have. The thing that I think is so important for us to realize as clinicians as well, though, um, earlier you had mentioned like disordered eating clients. I know for myself that I have had light training in that. You know, one of my professors is like one of the leading experts in you know, the United States about disordered eating. But I am not a trained clinician in that. I refer out. I think we always need to know where our strengths and our challenges are. And if it is something that we are not able to handle, and whether it's because of our knowledge and our experience, or it's because of our own personal views, we need to know when to refer out. So I think there are some layers to that answer. Find local clinicians, find support on a larger scale, 
Look at larger organizations that can help you. Um, look at your own personal needs. You can explore um, um, social media to find groups that might support you there. And also know when maybe you're a little bit underwater and you need to refer out. I think that's a really good point and a good recollection. And I've had exactly the same uh, experience myself as I, I too have very little experience with eating disorders. And so I know that that's one of those things when it comes into the room, I need to seek consultation, I need to refer out and be very deliberate because being aware while we're not doctors, there is still this unstated Hippocratic oath to do no harm and being really mindful of when something is out of our depth and whether we can get it in our depth uh, in the right amount of time where we need to work with someone that is more specialized. John, there's so many more questions I could ask you on this topic. As, as we wind up today's podcast interview and discussion here, what are some of the things that maybe we haven't covered that you want to touch on if there are any where it's like, oh, and here's another consideration as we're supporting a, a lifelong coming out process? <laughs> well, you're opening the doorway for another three-hour conversation. Um, I, I guess what I would suggest is we are in such an exciting time um, in the field of psychology where for the longest time, most LGBTQ research didn't exist. Most of the work we were doing was based on anecdotal stuff, experiences. Hey, I had this thing. I found this technique worked. But we are sitting in this idea where these big longitudinal studies are starting to come into play. And we're starting to understand on a deeper level what the needs of the LGBTQ community are, oftentimes by them self-identifying. We're also learning that, you know, this is such an important thing, that LGBTQ is not just one layer. We need to look at things like communities of color, socioeconomic status, education, all of these things are going to affect the coming out process. We need to look at differently abled people and how that would affect their experience. That we're at this really delicious moment in the world where these deeper, more personalized questions are being researched, explored, and written about. So if you have something specific that you have a question about, I bet someone out there is really looking at it deeply now find them, connect with them. You know, I'm one of those people that from the beginning of my career as a therapist, if I attended a, a, a presentation that you gave and I thought it was interesting, I would email you and say, I was really excited by your presentation. I'd love to take you to coffee and learn more about your work. I'm just that person. And here's the deal. Almost every single person I reached out to said yes. And those connections have been so valuable and so powerful whether it's learning something about LGBTQ care, whether it's about connecting with people and learning about self-harming behaviors, whether it's talking to someone who is, you know, working more in the, on the neuroscience and the neurobiology side. I've created these amazing people just by reaching out and saying, you know something more than I do. So be willing to reach out, be curious. There is so much exciting stuff on the horizon for the LGBT community and the work that we do um, as therapists and psychologists. I think those are great points. And John, you just walked right into my next question. So what are resources you recommend for our listeners and how can people get in touch with you? Um, so first off, how they can get in touch with me, they can look at my website, which is johnsovec.com. That's J-O-H-N-S-O-V as in Victor, 
ec.com. They can also look at gayteentherapy.com, which is my other website specifically for LGBTQ adolescents in the coming out process. They can follow me on social media. I'm at John Sovac on Twitter and John Sovac Therapy on Facebook um, and other resources that can be really valuable. Um, if you're working with youth, if you're not reading through the Gleason studies that come out every two years that talk about the experience of LGBTQ youth in schools, you're just doing a disservice to yourself. Understanding the work of the Trevor Project and how they're supporting people and their It Gets Better project is still rolling along and pretty amazing. Um, it's a project where people who are later in life are sharing experience with younger people to understand how it does get better and you can make it through these experiences. Human Rights Campaign has a lot of really powerful um, experience. SAMHSA has a lot of, of wonderful stuff too. And PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, and they recognize that the transgender piece is not in their title, and yet they provide these amazing, really accessible pieces about how to be a trans ally, how to support your LGBTQ as they're coming out, understand the language we use in the community. These are all really powerful resources. And once again, if people want to reach out to me, I'm more than happy to share those resources with them or be able to consult with them. And they can once again reach me at johnsovac.com. Wonderful, John. It was wonderful to spend this time with you. I really appreciate you taking time out to, to shed some light on a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart and also some a topic you have so much expertise in. So thank you again. Thank you. It's been amazing chatting with you today. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.